Open your Bibles to Hebrews. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Engage the One True God next week. But I just thought this week it would be a really good thing for us to take a service and simply focus on Jesus Christ. To focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I remember years ago hearing a story about a fighter. And he was just the nicest guy in the world, but when he got in the ring, he was an animal. And people were afraid to get into the ring with him. And so he was asked by a reporter one time, what is the change? What happens to you when you get into the ring? He said, well, I start thinking about my family and how much I love them, my wife and my children, and just how, how precious they are to me. And then I imagine my opponent hurting them. And I become focused. Isn't that interesting? Uh, it, it, is, it is amazing what you can do when you focus on something. You know, you watch these, these athletes and these great quarterbacks. And it's amazing to me how one of these quarterbacks can be sitting in the pocket and he knows that there's a defensive end or a, a safety blitz or something coming around the side. And he knows that he's about to get nailed. And he stands there waiting for his receiver to get open, and at the last minute makes the pass. What is that? That's focus. It's focus. You watch a great basketball player who, you know, there are some players at the end of the game who do not want the ball. Now, of course, there are some of us that you don't want us to have the ball. I understand that. But there are some people that, that players, and even players of great ability who at the end of the game, they don't want the ball. They're afraid to take the responsibility. There are others, it seems like they're born for that moment. They, Michael Jordan, he wanted that last shot. He, he was there. He was ready to hit that. Uh, Craig Elo, isn't he the only Cav that's ever been? Anyway, um, okay, Mark Price was pretty good. But you have all of these, these men that you watch in an athletic situation, and they have amazing focus. In history, there were men who were able to stand up. And I think of the Battle of Britain when uh, England is being invaded and Winston Churchill goes before the microphones and uh, the microphone and rallies a whole nation with his voice. He, he was a man who was able to focus on what was important at that moment. The book of Hebrews is all about focusing on Jesus Christ. Focusing on Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, how many of you have ever heard a conversation about the author of Hebrews? And if you've ever studied this subject, it's a, you know, among Bible students, there's a, there's a debate about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, I think that most people uh, believe that, that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, Brother Knox isn't sure, James Knox, in his um, uh, New Testament survey, he brought out a really interesting uh, Idea. Of course, Brother Knox always brings out something a little different. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. And when you look at, well, for me, it's just right across the page. Look at Philemon 1 1, and we'll, we'll compare them. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You see that? We address or we give the writer of the letter at the end of the letter. Our salutation, if I was writing to Chad Hollinger, I would say, Dear Chad. All right? And which is really strange because he already knows who he is most of the time, right? 
So, but that's not the way the Bible's written. In the salutation in the Scriptures, the author always identifies himself at the beginning. So look at Philemon 1.1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who wrote the book of Philemon? Paul. Paul. So here was Knox's interesting take on the author of Hebrews. Look at what it says, Hebrews 1.1. God. So who wrote the book of Hebrews? God did. So isn't that a novel idea? The, the, the ultimate author of this book is God. And Knox goes on to posit, and he, he's not putting it forward as saying this is true. It's just a, a guess, just like all of those who are guessing about who wrote the book of Hebrews. He believes the Lord Jesus Christ wrote it during the 40 days following His resurrection, before His ascension. And then the last, he gave it to one of his apostles, and then one of the apostles wrote the last chapter. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's a, it was an interesting idea, but ultimately we know who wrote the book of Hebrews. God did. God did. Why was the book of Hebrews written? And I will say this, that when you get into the general epistles, okay, an epistle is not an apostle's wife. And an epistle... <laughs> Isn't it funny? My dad told that joke my whole life. I heard it 500 times, and it still gets laughs every time that you tell it because somebody hasn't heard it before. How many of you have heard that many times? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, yeah, but the oldest are goodies. Um, my wife was telling me just recently that I need some new material. That was a little offensive to me. So the, the general epistles, when you get into the general epistles, they're called the general epistles because... For the most part, they're not addressed to a specific local church. So like the church at Corinth is written to what? The Corinthian church, the church at Corinth. This is really deep stuff. You learn really deep things at Grace Baptist. So the book of Romans is written to the church at Rome. The, the, the book of Philippi, or Philippians is written to the church at Philippi. Galatians is a little different because it's written to the churches in that area of Galatia. But they are, they are two specific churches. Um, the general epistles are generally considered that they're written to all Christians. Um, I, I would dispute that with the book of Hebrews. I think the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers worshiping in Jerusalem. Uh, I think it is more focused than the title of general epistle would give it. And we're not going to take the time to trace it down, but when you read through the book of Hebrews, there are some specific things that those believers, in a corporate sense, in a church in Jerusalem, that they were going through, that they were, uh, some of them were standing, some of them were not, but he was addressing it to a specific group of believers. So the book of Hebrews is very interesting in that it's written to a group of people who were going through persecution and we're about to go through even greater persecution. So we know that the book of Hebrews was written before the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. And the writer of Hebrews knew that that was coming. And it was a tough deal. It was a tough thing. There is a doctrine called replacement theology. And... Ultimately, what replacement theology teaches is that all the promises for Israel now apply to the church. All right? The only problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. Amen? So the book of Hebrews was written knowing that, that Israel was going to fall. Really, the impetus for this teaching of replacement theology comes from the fall of Jerusalem. 
when Jerusalem fell, that's when that teaching was able to take root. Because what the, the people who espoused that doctrine, who were teaching that doctrine, they said, now that Jerusalem is gone, God is done with the Jews, and now all of the promises that were intended for Israel now can apply to the church. Now, that is a false teaching. That is a false teaching. You have to tear out about a third of your Bible to hold to that teaching. It's a false teaching. And I will say this, that most churches in America, now let me, don't, don't miss this, most churches in America believe in replacement theology. This is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Anglican Church believes this. Most Presbyterian and Lutheran churches believe this. Almost all of modern Christianity practices what is called replacement theology. And Jesus Christ hates that teaching. He hates it. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go to Revelation chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want you to understand something. The, the, the idea of this replacement theology is that the promises of Israel to Israel now apply to the church, right? But it goes beyond that. What they say is that, the, that Israel or the Jews have ceased to be God's elect people. So not only do the promises that God gave Israel now apply to the church, but the Jews as a people are no longer God's people. So when the Zionist movement in the late 1800s started up, and it was the idea of, of the Jews going back to their land, though all of those who believed in replacement theology think that that's a silly thing because they're not God's people anymore. It's, it's not the Jews' land anymore. And that's why the National Council of Churches is completely against the Jewish state. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Now, for us who are Bible believers, that's a shocking thing. Uh, the Anglican Church was against Israel being there. When, um, b before the 1967 war, uh, there was the, the man who was really in charge of the city of Bethlehem was an Anglican priest. The Christian population was large in that area at that time. And they had the opportunity to allow Israel to have a say in Bethlehem where Jesus was born physically. You know, he existed before Bethlehem, amen? Physically, he was born at Bethlehem. Well, they didn't, he didn't want to do that because he didn't want to side with the Jewish state, so he sided with the Palestinian Authority. And now look at what happens. As a Christian, it's hard to even get there and see it. You can't, you can't go there. And so this, this idea of replacement theology is the idea that the promises for Israel now apply to the church, that God has done away with Israel, and that the Jews have ceased to be a people, and now we as Christians are the spiritual Jews. Let's see what Jesus thinks of that. Look at Revelation chapter 2 and look at verse 9. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So how many of you think that Jesus does not like replacement theology? 
Isn't that interesting? And so, now go back to Hebrews chapter 1. This gives us the intent of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to God's people, God's chosen people, who have become believers in the Messiah, who are living in the shadow of the temple. Now, what happened for these people was they got saved, they placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, but they were Jewish. And the center of the, of the Jews' cultural and religious life was the temple. And so they were still zealously keeping the feast days and the ordinances and all of those things that went along with being Jewish. But when they named the name of Christ, the Sadducees, who had come in power in the 60s, you're on 60 A.D., they hated the Christians. And so these Jews who had become Christians, followers of the Messiah, they were stopped from going to the temple. As a matter of fact, when they got to the temple, they were dragged out into the street and stoned and killed. And so those of you in our congregation who are from this area and you grew up in a Roman Catholic family and the, the family, when a baby is born, that's an important time and the, the baby is christened and then, then your confirmation happens or a wedding or whatever. And the center of that life is around the Catholic church. How many of you, that's kind of what you, the way that you grew up? Raise your hand. All right. So we have folks that, that is, that's your life. And for those of you who don't come from that background, my, you know, my, I grew up a, the son of a Baptist preacher. I never experienced that. But these folks in our congregation, when they receive Jesus Christ and they're baptized in a local New Testament church as a testimony to the fact that they believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, other than the physical persecution, the, the shunning and the the um, pressure from the family, it's still there. It's still there. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? We need to pray for them. That's still there. So what the book of Hebrews is about, it's written for Christians who grew up in the Jewish religion and by race and family are Jewish but they followed the Messiah. And I want you to think about something. Their belief in the Messiah, their love for the Messiah, and their choice to follow Him is now going to cut them off from the Messiah's people. That's what's going on. Now, let's take it the next step. They're living in Jerusalem. They're living in, in a Jewish city. And now they need to have jobs. Now they need to have businesses, and they won't hire them. They won't let them work. They're, in Hebrews chapter 10, we learn that, that these Jewish Christians, that they're made a public spectacle. They're, made, they're, they're put in stocks in public places, and they're beaten, and they're mocked. And the amazing thing is their brothers and sisters in Christ feed them while they're in the stocks and meet their physical needs while they're in the stocks. Meaning what? that the people are bringing them the food will be the next ones that are put in the stocks. That's what's going on. That's the background of Hebrews. And so now you have these people, these Jewish believers, who are immersed in the Jewish culture, and yet they've met the Messiah. But here's the problem. They don't have the New Testament yet. They, they don't have Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10, and 11 that's telling them all about God's plan for Israel. 
They don't have any of that yet. And so the book of Hebrews is written to give these people an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, and then he is compared, he's compared to the law. He's compared to the angels. He's compared to Moses and Joshua. He's compared to the tabernacle. He's compared to all of these things. He's compared to the sacrifices and the priesthood. Jesus Christ is compared to all those things. And do you know what the Hebrews learn? Jesus is better. He's better than all of it. And then, in the book of Hebrews, they are given th- there, there are three things, uh, or reactions, or responses to who Jesus Christ is. There is apathy. Apathy. You know what? I just don't really care that much. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. I'll show you. Hebrews chapter 5. The writer, speaking of Jesus Christ, look at verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So here you have a group of Jewish believers who have the opportunity to really be the foundation of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. That's their opportunity, but they don't really care. They don't really care. And, you know, this is what some people do. Have you ever noticed that when when trouble comes in some people's lives, they kind of bury their heads in the sand and ignore it? The bills start piling up, and so what they do is they, they take that stack of bills and they put it in a drawer where they don't have to see it. And if they don't have to see it, then it doesn't exist and they can ignore it. Now, how many of you think that's a good idea? No, because the bills, the, the, the creditors are going to come. But you can't just ignore it. There are times when there's a problem in a relationship. And this is generally a, a, a male issue. All right? Ladies want to work on the relationship. Remember, there are always exceptions. But in a general sense, often ladies want to work on the relationship and guys want to eat. (laughs) Honey, what are you thinking of? Football. How do you feel about us? Uh, Happy? And so what happens is when trouble comes, when trouble comes, many men just want to just keep going as if everything's okay and expect it to take care of itself. It's not going to take care of itself. A relationship is like anything else worthwhile. It takes investment, right? It takes work. It takes effort and not apathy, you know, uh, I heard this years ago that this pastor is counseling this couple. They'd been married for a lot of years. And the, the pastor looks at the wife and said, okay, what's the problem? And he said, she said, he never tells me he loves me. He never tells me he loves me. And the pastor looked at the man who hardly ever said anything. And he, she, he, the pastor says to him, what, so what, what's up with that? Told her I loved her when we got married. If that ever changes, I'll let her know. There, there really are people that are like that, right? 
So in the Christian faith, so you become a believer and then life gets hard. And so now, um, Nick, come up here and help me. Come on up here. So now, Nick's my brother, and he's mad at me because I become a Christian. And he really starts giving me pressure, and we have a business together. I repair guitars, he destroys them. That's the Ozzy Osbourne ministry, you know? All right? So it, it, we, we have this business together. And so now if I keep talking about the Lord, it's going to destroy my business. But, you know, I do believe, but I don't want to lose my business, so what am I going to do? I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to fight against the Lord, but I'm not going to take the next step necessary to go on in my faith. That's what was happening. Thanks, Nick. That, that's what was happening to these people, and they're burying their heads in the sand. And just like we were talking this morning about how wonderful it is at Grace Baptist that we have these men in the church who can teach the Word of God. Isn't that a blessing? It's a fantastic thing. What was happening in the church of Jerusalem is they didn't have people who could teach the Word of God. They had people who were capable but had not exercised themselves. Look at what it says. We're still in Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 13, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Do you see that there is labor, that there is intensity, that there is intention in becoming strong? and mature in the faith. These other people, the, the, the clock did not stop. Physically, they were getting older, but spiritually, they were still babies. They were not growing. Why? Because it's hard. And so, the first reaction to the problem of being a Hebrew believer in Jerusalem in the first century, the, the first reaction to be careful of is just apathy. And there's a second group of people, and these are people who would... Uh, the, the second reaction is apostasy. Now, what is an apostate? What is apostasy? It is someone, an apostate is someone who looks at revealed truth, truth from the Word of God, truth from, the God, from God the Creator. They look at it. They recognize it as truth, but they say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. I see it. I understand it. I even believe that it's true. I've even seen the power of God in the people around me. But it's too hard. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to walk away. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. You can see some of these people there. Verse 4, Hebrews 6, 4, For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. So these are people. that, And it's like people who they grow up in a Christian home. 
And they know exactly what the faith is. And they decide they're going to go another way. There's no way for that person ever to be saved. Unless they come back to the one way that they can get saved. This is very important. Now, I know that this passage has caused a lot of problems for people in Christianity over the years because there is a group of Christianity who believes that you can lose your salvation, right? None of those people, though, believe that if you lose your salvation, you can't be saved again. This passage is saying that a person who walks away from the only way to salvation, that without coming back to that only way of salvation, there's no way to renew them to repentance, that that's the only way that you can come to Christ. And so what happens is, for these people, they not only don't grow, they actively work against the truth of the Word of God. I think of someone like Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a professor. I think he is at University of North Carolina now. He was at Princeton. Um, but he grew up in a fundamentalist church. All right, He went to Moody Bible Institute. And at Moody Bible Institute, they taught him that we don't have copies of the original manuscripts and there are no perfect copies. And so he began questioning the Word of God. Then he went to Wheaton. How many of you have heard of Wheaton College? He went to Wheaton. And at Wheaton, they emphasized that. And they taught him the principles of higher criticism and lower criticism and, and the idea that, that we have to be continually working to, to determine what is the Word of God. And here's what they taught him. They denied the doctrine of biblical preservation. And so he went to Moody as a Bible believer. He left Moody and went to Wheaton questioning he left Wheaton and went to Princeton as a complete agnostic. And now, he wrote a book several years ago called Misquoting Jesus, completely attacking the biblical position. And it sold more than 100,000 copies in its first year, mostly to young Christians. What, what is Bart Ehrman? He's an apostate. He is someone who knew the truth but based on unfaithful and untrue witnesses who taught him, his faith was removed. He was never settled in his faith. That whatever faith he had, it was removed. He had never come to a full belief. He had believed in vain. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians says? Be careful that you've not believed in vain. What is believing in vain? It's believing in nothing. I have all this intellectual understanding, but I've never placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. He had never come to that place. And so he goes to Princeton, he graduates from Princeton Theological Seminary, and now he actively works against the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because in his academic situation, it would have been much harder to be a Bible believer. His premise is this, if God couldn't preserve His Word, why should I believe He inspired it in the first place? You ready for this? He's absolutely right. Yes. The only problem is God did preserve His Word. He did preserve His Word. He inspired it and then He preserved it. That's why that doctrine of preservation is so vital. 
It is so vital. I believe that I hold in my hands today the very words of God supernaturally preserved by God Almighty. Amen. Amen. And so now what happens is Bart Ehrman has become an apostate. And so the, where did his opposition, the opposition to his faith come from? Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, Princeton Theological Seminary. And what did he do? Did he go on in the faith or did he go back? He went back. He went back. That's the second thing that you can do. The first thing, apostasy. Things get hard. I'm, not, I'm just not going to fight it. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm just not going to fight it. Or you take sides with the enemy. You apostatize. You turn around. Now you fight against God. The third thing that you can do, remember, apathy, apostasy, or anticipation. Anticipation. Let's look at this. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. Isn't that awesome? And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Do you know, you men who are teaching, do you know what you need to do? You need to love the people that you're teaching and provoke them to love the other people in the class and provoke them to good works. Do you know what happened to Bart Ehrman? He had teachers that provoked him to unbelief. Now, let me just step back for a minute. How many of you know someone who is influenced by, Bible, by Moody Bible Institute? Raise your hand. You know somebody who is influenced. Who here is sitting in Grace Baptist Church of Sydney, Ohio? How many of you aren't sure? We can give you a map later. Okay? The pastor that started this church went to Moody Bible Institute. Um, the, the notes that I obviously haven't gotten to, many of the notes came from uh, uh, John Phillips who taught at Moody Bible Institute for years and years. The issue is not, was Moody a bad place? The issue is, how did they teach preservation of the Scriptures? When Bill Hovestrite was there, they believed that. He was the founder of this church. Well, Jesus was the founder, but he was the man. Amen. All right? When Bart Ehrman went there, they didn't teach it. When he went to Wheaton, they actively undermined it. And when he went to Princeton, they built him up in infidelity. That's what's going on. And so, here's our option. Let's read on. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, Anticipation. Verse 24, or verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. What day? That's the day that Jesus Christ returns. I, I just, I'm so excited that Jesus Christ is coming back. There's that movie coming out, Left Behind, the movie. And um, Cage, what's his first name? Nicholas Cage. I saw him on Fox and Friends yesterday. He's being interviewed about it. And Nicholas Cage's brother is a preacher. And Cage had never heard of Left Behind. And I want you to, th I want you to think about something. We always think of these people as the most informed, most enlightened. Nicholas Cage comes across as being this really uh, uh, 
worldly wise person. Left Behind sold 65 million copies. Oh, I, I've never heard of it. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, I'm trying not... Uh, how many of you can tell I want to go farther with that? Okay. I'm trying to be the kinder, gentler pastor. So he calls his brother, and he figured his brother would know about it. And he said, yeah. And he starts telling him about it. So here's Nicolas Cage starring in this movie about the rapture, about the return of Jesus Christ. And he has absolutely no understanding, no understanding of the subject. Can I tell you something? Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen. We need to tell as many people as possible that he's coming. And the more persecution that we see, the more antagonism to the gospel that we see, the more that we see false religion being built up and true religion being attacked, the more, the, the more we should be looking for the soon return of Jesus Christ. So what, is, what are the three responses to persecution and to cultural opposition to the faith? Apathy, I'm just going to stop. Apostasy, I'm going to fight against it. I'm going to fight against the truth or anticipation. Man, the more fight there is, the more I'm looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Look at what happens in, ver in chapter 10. Look at verse, um, verse 30. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I've got to tell you, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, your belief in Him or disbelief of the gospel will not change the outcome. If a person says, I don't believe that God will judge me, it is still a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. The only way to stop that is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And then, you ready for this? Then you're in Jesus' hand and in the Father's hand. But not in judgment. In love and acceptance as a joint heir with Jesus Christ with full blessing forever. That is awesome. If you're not saved, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, the fact that you don't believe that you need the gospel, that's not going to stop you from falling in the hands of an angry God. You've heard me say it before. If I say I don't believe in gravity and jump off the building, my disbelief in gravity has nothing to do with the outcome. Look at the next verse. Verse 32, But call to remembrance the former days, in which after ye were illuminated, ye, en ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. And that's what I was talking about a few minutes ago. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Is that a great passage? Look, you might lose everything here, but you've got a better inheritance in heaven. Look at the next verse. 
Verse 35, I'm going to preach a message on this. I was reading it this morning and it really struck me. Cast not away therefore your confidence. Don't don't cast away your confidence. Have confidence in the Lord. Have faith in His Word. Have, Have trust in His plan. But cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Do you see here your options? Apathy, you don't grow. Apostasy, go back unto perdition. What is perdition? That's damnation. Judas is called the son of perdition. Jesus said about Judas, it would be better for that man if he had never been born. A person who has the opportunity to believe in Christ and does not. The person who has the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ and walks away. The person has the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ and goes back. They're going back to perdition. Those of us who believe, we're going on to salvation. Now, let me be very clear about something. The book of Hebrews, what it's doing is it's removing the religion from the Jews and lifting up only Jesus. Removing the religion... And lifting up Jesus. See, the religious Jews believed that by keeping all of those ordinances, the law that Moses had given by God, and then the 613 Levitical codes that were added called the Talmud, when those things were added, these religious Jews thought that by keeping those, they could have salvation. Do you know that there are people today who believe that as long as, the, as a lady, if you don't cut your hair and you don't wear makeup that you're going to be able to be saved. You know there are people who believe that way? You put on makeup, you lose your salvation. I've always been taught if a barn needs paint, you paint it. Amen? (laughs) There are people who really believe that if they wear something, that will determine whether or not they go to heaven. Mormons have this, this undergarment that they wear, that if they take it off, they lose their salvation. We've looked at the Revelation passage so many times, you know it by heart. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and blind and poor and naked. You can put on whatever you want. If you're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you're naked before God. As a matter of fact, look at what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's... I've told you, I know Laura said I need new material, but it's so funny. 
Jacob, when he was, I don't know, three, was going to play hide-and-seek with us. And we had these curtains on the window that came down to about right here. And so Jacob was hiding from us. He got behind the curtain, and it covered him to about right here. And he said, find me. And we come in, and I said to Laura, he's your son. I said he was three. He was actually 13, but pray for us. He's... He's underneath. Find me. And what did we do? What do good parents do? Where's Jacob? Where's Jacob? This is exactly... He just turned 16 on Tuesday. And he's still that same kid. Pray for him. What people do is they think that they can be good. They believe that Jesus can be their friend, that they can be good, that they can not cheat on their taxes and be faithful to their wife and love their neighbor, and that those things are going to take them to heaven. How many of you know people that believe that way? Do you know what they are? They're like Jacob was, being hidden by that curtain. But you're, you're open and naked to God. Why? Because you're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is all about how your religion cannot save you. Your position in a family cannot save you. Your relationship to a church cannot save you. The only thing that can save you is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I would imagine that those three groups are represented in this room.